So, as I mentioned last time, this episode was actually foreshadowed uh, just a little bit in the previous in uh, entry into our series. And again, I like that little thing. I'll be talking a little bit more about uh, why that's awesome in just a bit. I, really, I will. But, um... You know what? I've changed my mind. I've decided to talk about it right now. <laughs> so there's two plots in this episode, but they don't really fit into the standard A plot, B plot format. Not really. The closest thing here would be the B plot is the, the, you know, the primary plot in this case, and the A plot would be the more personal plot of Lando and Jakar. I want to talk about that first, the A plot, so to speak. So, first of all, it is actually in... I've thought about this bit and pieces, and I've decided that I'm just going to go ahead and say what I mean, and you can call me pretentious if you want to. That's cool. Um, I think this, these two plots are actually thematically tied together. Both plots are about individuals who are basically caught up in a system. Uh, in one case, it is uh, a system of beliefs and whatnot. In another case, it's a system of bureaucracy. Uh, in both cases, they are hampered by that in what they want to do. In both cases, there's just sort of this undercurrent of... <sighs> gray versus gray, and also the occasional black. Does that make sense? Because in the case of the... Uh, the state side of thing with the with regard to the strike and whatnot, uh, Oren Zento is clearly a bastard, and yet uh, and and similarly, uh, it, it's understandable why he is like this. And yet, with the other case, you'd think well, clearly Londo is a bastard here, and a fair argument could be made for that. But the reason I say it's a system is because it's remember this is a cycle of hatred situation going on here. Why is Londo so insistent on hurting Jakar this way? Is it because of the fact that he likes tor tormenting him? Yes, absolutely. Uh, is it because he holds his beliefs in, you know, in, 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 uh, what's the word? He thinks little of them. There's a term for that. I can't think of. He holds them in, in uh, contempt. There we go. He holds them in contempt? Yes, that is also valid. But as Londo himself points out, if it not for the fact that Jakar hurt him personally, with his nephew, and professionally with his with the uh, invasion of the planet, I forgot to write down the name of. Then he wouldn't be pushing this hard. He would just be, he would just be like, ha ha, okay, give me money and go away. And that's where the system comes into things. Really, who's to blame there, Jakar or Londo? The answer is neither. It is the systems which both of them support and are a part of and are hurt by and injured by, and we'll see more of this as a thread throughout the course of Babylon 5 as we go forward. One other little note, though, about that plot. First of all, I like how it, uh, again, pays respect to beliefs. At no point is Jakar's uh, belief system really mocked. It's just the way he thinks, and it's clear. It is pretty important to him. Uh, I would like to give huge, huge props to uh, Katsulas. I, I, once again, I'm really bad at pronouncing his name. The gentleman who plays Jakar, he's great. Um, he was great. And uh, he does a great, great job of portraying someone who is not a zealot, but someone who honestly, genuinely cares about what he believes in and showcases that. It's what we here in the States would probably refer to as the warm preacher. 
kind of a thing, you know? Yes, he believes A, B, and C. Yes, he is part of this sort of religious organization, but there's this kind of kindness and warmth and compassion to it that makes that a positive thing rather than a negative. In other words, it's a good person who believes dot, 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 instead of it's a person who believes dot, dot, dot. You see the difference? And I think he does a really good uh, job with that balance. But more to the point, I also like how they flat out show Natoth, who is just like, no, I don't believe this at all. I'm not interested in that whatsoever. But she's still willing to help him on the matter. I like that. I also like how Sinclair shows uh, respect to uh, Jakar for the whole situation, even despite the fact that he's in a terrible mood and has a literal crisis on his hand, which is going to have some far-reaching effects, which I'll talk about in a minute, of course. One other thing I want to mention, though. Jakar goes to Sinclair personally, and he threatens. He's like, you know, I, don't make me bring this before the assembly. But he doesn't threaten the way he has before. Furthermore, when he talks to him, it is as if as, as a person to another person, man to man, if you will, uh, begging and pleading with him to help him in this situation. And Sinclair does do so, does go out of his way, despite everything, to help this man. And then at the end, it is Sinclair who provides the solution. And Jacquard, you cannot tell me Jacquard is going to forget that. I mention this because if you've been paying attention over several episodes now, and I've been pointing it out almost each time, Jakar and Sinclair have been forming a mutual respect and a growing, um, for lack of a better term, an alliance. The two, there is a great deal of camaraderie that is slowly building between the two. And Jakar, someone who at the beginning of the series was clearly portrayed as the bad guy, is slowly softening it up as, as a process of this because, and this is great, it's not that Jakar is more or less of a bad guy. That hasn't really changed. What has changed is now he doesn't have to constantly have his mask up because he trusts Sinclair enough to show a little bit more of the real Jakar to him. And because he's showing it to Sinclair, he's showing it to us, the viewers. Really nice touch there. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I, I just want to say one of the things I love most is the unstated consequence of the strike. In other words... If this goes down, it will not just be bad for Babylon 5, which it would, and bad for the people involved, which it would. It would be another precedent set in both sides, too. More workers might be encouraged to strike, and at the same time, the Senate and the labor committee might be more inclined to bring harsher methods down. Escalation was a very real threat. Now, escalation is not a guarantee. I've talked about escalation a lot in everything, not just on my show, but in real life, because it's one of the most fundamental aspects of human society and therefore is basically omnipresent. But escalation is not a guarantee. And I mention that because I've been called out before. Oh, well, you say this could happen and this could happen, but it didn't and it won't. Yes, absolutely. I'll bring you a direct example. Dragon Age Origins. During my lore run of Dragon Age Origins, I sat and talked for like 20 minutes about the consequence of pretending that this was a holy symbol to the troops who was given to, and the pluses and minuses and the long-term reaching effects of that tiny little decision. Now, that didn't turn into a big thing, but it could have. You, 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 see the, you see why that's such a razor's edge thing. At no point should any such decision be made so flippantly. I will say that the woman in charge of this, I can't even remember her name, the, the, the blonde-haired woman who was, was the worker's representative, uh, I got the strong impression throughout the, the entire episode, all the way to the end, that she didn't really fully understand the total consequences of what she was acting. She understood it on a personal level. She says it flat out to Sinclair. There's a good chance that there will be violence. There's a good chance that there will be deaths, just like in all those other strikes that happened. She lists examples. 
but she doesn't really think about the long-term potential consequences, which Sinclair absolutely is, and he mentions that at least once in the episode. I do love the portrayal of the day-to-day business. The beginning of the episode, and just rewinding a bit now. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, it's very hectic. Uh, it's very down-to-earth. It's like, okay, we got this here, and we got this here, and this ship will go here, yada, 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 right? Believe it or not, I really like that. Now, maybe it's because I'm a ship guy, so I kind of like ports and harbors and that kind of thing. Uh, you ever been to Norfolk? Anybody who's watching this? Norfolk Shipyards. It's uh, big and very hectic and oh my god. Um, that's kind of the feeling I got from the beginning of this. It was a good way to get across that sensation that Babylon 5 is a bustling port. It's one thing to say those two words, bustling port, but they do a really good job of showing it, and I absolutely appreciate that uh, in, in the way they present that. There's also tiny tidbits throughout the episode, literally just a few seconds cut away, and you hear audio in the background, it's like, oh, it's another three-hour wait or whatever, to show that this is a, still a bustling port. Very well done. Um... One thing I love about Babylon 5 is it takes things that you wouldn't think are interesting and makes them interesting. In this case, what is the primary core element of this episode, other than the system thing, which I'll talk more about later? What is causing all this drama? Budgets. When was the last time you remember watching a show or movie or playing a game where budgets was interesting? I mention this because I love it when anything pulls this off. Uh, actually, a favorite example of mine of this is the Next Generation. Um, I can't remember the name of the episode. It's a two-parter. Uh, Chain of Command, I, I want to say, is the name of the episodes, where uh, they actually managed to make duty rosters interesting. I'll talk about that when we get to TNG, but still. So budgets, they actually make this interesting because it's a, it's a convincing problem. We have actually seen, personally, the consequence of the budget problem. There has been a death. An individual has died. Never mind the loss of cargo. Never mind the, the repairs which are going to have to happen. Never mind the fact that now they've got a worker strike on the head. All of that is, is just backlogged to the fact that someone dies right at the beginning of the episode. And it really showcases how much budget can affect things on a personal and on a macroscopic scale. I love it. I love how they do that because that's what they do. They take budget and they do something with it. They don't just have a man with a piece of paper and into the fourth quarter we will have to do... No, that's not going to make interesting television. What they do is they show what happens when the budget goes the way it goes. I'm not going to say wrong. Although it is possible it's wrong, but we don't actually know. I love how Babylon 5 does it. They never really tell us right or wrong. I love that. So... <clears throat> We also see uh, the methods by which budget actually matters. To, 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 I'm just going to go down my list here that I've written down. The infrastructure of keeping something as huge as a station running, never mind the fact that this is a major trade, horps, uh, trade port hub. <laughs> Speaking of which, trade, keeping trade flowing. Supplies for the actual station, for the people working on the station, for the people living on the station, for the people who are nowhere near the station but are using this as a uh, warehouse or a trade port, you know. Uh, the livelihood of the individuals on the station, and again, we see that on a personal level. And, of course, security. Now, I like this one. It's, this one never comes out right in this episode, but it is implied. Let's say for a moment that the workers acquiesced, and they said, fine, we will bend over and let you take us over the barrel. Well, what if in that situation we now have people... That is a security risk. I don't even need to explain this. We've already seen this with the gambling... Uh, 
the gambling guard in, in a previous episode. That is a security risk. You now have disgruntled workers who are underpaid. That makes it, it's already easy enough to bribe people to make something happen when they are already upset with their jobs and already don't make enough money in order to really subsist properly. They are now incredibly susceptible to bribery. Now, if I can explain what I mean by this really quick, um, one of the things I used to, my, my boss once said uh, back when I worked uh, network security uh, as an anti-hacking team, a, a white hat, was there's no such thing as absolutely secure all, uh, and most security features are there to keep innocent people out. The point behind that statement was someone who is sufficiently motivated and sufficiently supplied will penetrate any defense, period. All that matters is there is their versus your. Okay, you with me? So the general idea here is the more security you have, the more you're going to discourage. So anyone up to this point is no longer going to bother with unless they're very, very motivated. So they're not even going to bother to try. Anyone up to this point, right around here, they might try, but there's a chance they'll be stopped. And of course, these people are going to get through whatever, you know, right? What this does by having disgruntled workers who are underpaid is this lowers your relative security rating down to here. So now it's not just that people are going to be able to bribe their way in, it's more people. People who have less money, people who are less motivated, people who are less supplied now have access to your station. By contrast, well-paid well workers who are well-motivated, who actually think that their commander cares about them and is on their side, that technically raises the security bar much higher and thus makes it more secure station. You see where I'm going with this? This is another reason why Sinclair was an awesome commander. He was really good at getting people on his side um, and trying to find a way to make people work together. He, he was good at trying to find that third solution. I'll talk more about that later, though. So I do feel really, really bad about Sinclair's position, but I just realized I don't want to talk about that yet. <laughs> so I like the music of this episode. Uh, I've talked against the wallpaper music idea. I hate the wallpaper music idea. I understand that it's a valid perspective. I understand it's something that some people actually portray as the correct thing to do in television. I get that. I don't agree. For those of you who have not heard me talk about this over on Voyager, in summary, the wallpaper music concept is you want music that doesn't draw the attention of the audience. That's just there so that it's not quiet, so that it's not a, a no music situation. It's literally wallpaper music. It's there to be in the background and nothing else. I disagree with that. I think music should service the episode. Silence were needed, music were needed, tension were needed, etc. Um, this episode is a good example of why I feel that. The music helps keep things that are relatively simple. And again, budgets and Senate meetings and a committee and the Rush Act and strikers, making all of that stuff seem very tense and, and you know present, like, like it's a big deal, was really helped by the music of this episode. I want to give some props really quick to John Snyder. Uh, John Snyder is the gentleman who plays Oren Zento. Uh, he's done a couple of things over the years. Probably what I remember him most for is over on Star Trek, of course, because Star Trek and Babylon 5 trade actors like their candy. I'm, I'm serious. I'll keep pointing them out as we go through the series. But uh, I remember him from the episode Masterpiece Society over in TNG, where he played a bureaucratic bastard who was basically an obstinate obstacle to progress. So, in this episode, he plays an obstinate obstacle to progress who is a bureaucratic bastard. So, it's nice to see that he's got his niche filled there. However, 
One of the things I like is the fact that they actually make a good point. I should say he makes a good point. Some people seem to think that those in power above them are a bottomless well of money. And that is not true. I'm going to try and explain what I mean by that in, in, a, in a total vacuum. No real-life politics into this, okay? Let's just, let's just leave that aside. The reality that governments spend way too much money on stupid thing is true. Okay, we're just... But, but, a budget is an actual mandatory aspect of a government. Even a government that had no corrupt leaders, that had no stupid spending, is still going to be always a slave to budget because they don't have infinite money. They do have a finite resource situation. And they have to work with that. And I like the fact that that is actually presented here as, as the primary counter-argument. There's actually only two arguments that Zento gives for his side. One, their strike is illegal. They are on contract, and they are not allowed to do this by contract. And number two, we don't have the money to give you. It is worth noting that Sinclair, the money Sinclair gives to them came directly from the military budget. That's how budget works. You have a pool of resources. You have to allocate it. That's actually what the term budget means, to part and parcel, right? So that has consequence. That, didn't, that money didn't come from nowhere. The military is now out a million plus credits, or however much it was, to try and keep these people happy. Now, I do, think, do I think that was the right decision? Absolutely. I do think that they were overspending a little bit on their military, and that can be fixed. And we're pretty sure there is actually corruption in the government as far as the politicians and whatnot, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But even in a flat, empty situation, if you are trying to run your country, your nation, your government, whatever, and you're trying to be fair and kind and just to everyone, you're going to go bankrupt. That is the unfortunate reality of a finite resources situation. You have to cut back. You have to trim. You have to find some kind of a budget that makes things work. It's unfortunate, but it's true. That being said, that is doable. That is something that can happen. That is something that should happen. Which brings me to my next point about that corruption thing. So I mentioned how uh, you know neither side was really portrayed as the bad guy. And Zento is probably the exception to this. But I mention that because I don't think the Senate are the bad guys in this either. Nor do I think the committee was. Nor do I think their budget people. They keep several, several times in this episode, they talk about their experts back home. I just realized part of the reason I like this episode is because I, I love economics and it's, it's an episode about budget. Sorry. So they've got experts back home, right? This is inde endemic of the overall theme of this episode, which I'm going to be leading into here. Those experts have said that Babylon 5 can make things work with the budget they have. This is provably not the case. Reality disagrees with the paper. Now, people adhering to paper over reality is such a common thing in fiction that it's silly, probably because it's such a common thing in reality. Uh, I can speak from personal experience within the last month of having to deal with reality, not agreeing with paper, and the paper telling me, no, no, you have to adhere to this because screw you. Oh, I just finished my taxes. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of a common thread in life to have to deal with that kind of ridiculousness. But why? Why is the paper disagree? Well, there's a bunch of options here. Number one, the most likely option, corruption. That money is being allocated to people to, to give them fancier lives, fancier coats, the kind of thing that's happened in government forever. In other words, fat. 
let's just call it what it is, that is budget fat that is going to people who are benefiting from it, who are skimming or who are allocating it to certain things and that way they can have a nicer office or whatever. It's very common. Even if you don't get into outright illegality and fraud, even in a corporate level, one of the things I remember from uh, my second to last corporate job back in California, um, you had your budget. And of course, if you don't spend your budget, you don't get it, which is a fallacy I'm not even going to get to right now. So people would go out of their way to spend, uh, overspend their budget for the week, or the month rather, excuse me, on just making them have a nicer office, or getting them a nicer printer, or a nicer chair, or making it so that their window had some decoration on it. Basically just, even though they weren't personally like taking home money, you know, not literal corruption, literal fraud, their lives were bettered because they were burning, and I'm just going to call it that, burning company money on their own improvement. Now, if you're paying attention, that's not really their fault. Not really. They're just doing what they are forced to do because if they don't, that money goes away, which again is a fallacy. That's a, that's a stupid concept. I've always disagreed with that since since I was a kid, for God's sakes. If, for those of you who don't, aren't aware of this, if, if you've never encountered this, it's like this. Let's say you have a budget of 100. doesn't matter the unit, just 100, okay? Well, this year you spend 50 of that. Good job, you're under budget. Next year your budget is 50. Okay, that's a slight exaggeration. Usually it's 60, but it's always lowered because you didn't spend that much. Now you might be like, well, that makes sense. Sure it does, on paper. Reality doesn't agree, though. This year, things go badly. You spend 120. You see the problem? <laughs> so, yeah, they are forced to do this kind of thing in order to hold on to their budget. Because what that, act, what that type of... Uh, that, that shrinking and stretching concept does, encourages in people, is to spend up to your budget so your budget stays where it is. So in case you ever need it, you have it there. You with me? Otherwise, things just go wonky. It's one of the reasons why uh, back, uh, back when I lived in Kansas, there's this highway that's been worked on for literally years because of the budget problem. I hope you guys don't find this boring. I'm, I just realized I'm just talking about economics. What does this have to do with the episode? It has to do with the episode because everything wrong with what's going on is a system. There's no person. There's no fat cat. There's no... Um, Sheer Khan sitting on top of his ivory tower. That's a that's a terrible reference. Nobody's going to get that. Um, there's no uh, Emperor Palpatine just sitting on his throne going, <laughs> and then I will reduce the budget, and then all will be made. There's no, there's nothing like that going on. The problem is the system. The system exists to inc and and the system as it exists encourages corruption. The system as it exists encourages burning money. The system as it exists encourages needless spending. So let's get back to those experts. This is how I was leading into this, right? Are those experts deliberately corrupt? Or are they just doing their job as adhered to them? Or are they just misinformed people? It isn't, I mean, for God's sakes, how many times have you sat down and said, I need these things and written it down on paper, not even financially, just like for a job or to take care of your car or for a vacation or whatever, and you've gone out and the reality disagreed with what you wrote down ahead because there's things you didn't plan for, there's random variables you didn't consider, there's things that can just happen out of the blue. There's so many things that can go wrong and even right in real life you can't plan for. So it's possible those experts that they keep referencing were just honest people doing their jobs. 
But because of the fact that they put that on paper, the senators said, no, that's the, that's the adherence, and that's what we're adhering to. Because of course they have to, because they can't be seen as being light on this, or else other people will revolt. And of course, if they're too harsh, you've got the opposite problem. Right towards the end of the episode, Senator Hidoshi, he really shines a light on this. Because even the guy who was kind of portrayed as, who, I'm sorry, not kind of, who is portrayed as the face of the Senate, the only senator we encounter in the whole episode, Senator Hidoshi, is on our side, the side of the workers, the side of Sinclair. He praises Sinclair for what he did. And then he tells him flat out, this is not a good thing. This is going to have long-term consequence. The Senate hates you for this. The only reason they're going with this is because popular support is currently going that way. And Mr. Oren... Mr. Orenzento, he has powerful friends who have now been made to look like fools because of you, and you have just made more enemies. And th I don't think this is really a spoiler because this is Babylon 5, and for something I'll talk about in a moment. But that will come back. That will have consequence in the future. I like that most about this episode. I like the fact that they take the third option and help the workers and settle things, and there will be consequence for it. It is not an easy out. It is an out, but it is not an easy out. It doesn't just fix everything with a Band-Aid. Um, I actually only have a couple more notes now that I'm looking down on it. I guess I didn't really finish my system point, but really there's not much more to add. The problem is when a system exists like the one we have there in, in Babylon 5 and hell in real life too, there's no individual you can point to to say, you, you are, at, you are to blame. You are the one at fault. We have a bunch of people culpable. Arguably everyone is culpable. But that's more or less equally at that point. It's, it's a matter of inches amongst the mass. No individual gets the blame for a system because there is no individual to blame for a system. It is the system's fault. It's FF10 all over again, you know? And I'm not going to get too much more into that, I don't think, because that's getting into some uh, dangerous topics. Uh, I will say one other thing here. I like how Sinclair, two other things, actually. I like how Sinclair is once again showcased as the lawful good. Someone who's willing to work through the system and by the system's laws, you know, literally adhering to the law in order to accomplish what he believes to be the right thing. Knowing, again, consequence. He even says that even before the senator contacts him. He's like, this, this is not, we're going to burn for this. This is going to cause us some problems in the future. But damn it, we're going to do it, and yada, yada, yada. But I love that. He, uh... He, he follows the orders of the Senate and of Mr. Zinto to the letter. <laughs> Very lawful good. It, it, Sinclair might be one of my favorite examples of a lawful good character. Final note, continuity. I know I mentioned this earlier, and I just want to end on this note. I don't have any uh, Deutsch box sections, and I don't have any uh, uh, foreshadowing uh, spoiler sections. This is continuity's blessing in a nutshell. I've talked so, so many times about why I love continuity, and I've had some viewers disagree with me on that, and that's great. I've had some viewers uh, argue the opposite point for the sake of arguing, and that's fine. Um, this episode really highlights, in a very direct and obvious way, why I love continuity. If Jakar and Londo were just arguing back and forth, and Londo was willing to go as far as he did in order to hurt Jakar, 
That would either paint Londo as a terrible person or would be bad writing. It would be drama for the sake of drama for the sake of the episode, and it would go away next episode and not matter. The blessing of continuity is we know why Londo is willing to go this far in this episode. We know what actually matters sufficiently to him. He says it flat out in this episode. My nephew and that planet. This is what this is about. You hurt me, and now I am hurting you back. And that kind of consequence does not exist without continuity. That's the last thing I've got. Next episode... Well... We'll get there.